In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Paul Atkins. Paul is an organizational psychologist, author, and the co-developer of the Pro-Social Process, along with Stephen Hayes and David Sloan Wilson. This unique approach draws from the Nobel Prize-winning economic theory of Lynn Ostrom, evolutionary science, and the psychology of behavior change to offer a practical framework for creating highly effective, inclusive, and cooperative teams. In today's conversation, we cover things like the evolutionary science behind why human beings are fundamentally a cooperative species, Lynn Ostrom's eight Nobel Prize-winning core design principles, and how you can apply them to increase the effectiveness of the groups you are a member of, a practical tool for creating a strong sense of purpose and identity in any team and why this is vital, and a whole lot more. You can learn more about Paul's work and the pro-social process at www.prosocial.world. Enjoy the show. Paul, welcome to the show. Um, for anybody that isn't aware of you and the work that you do, could you tell us a bit about your background and how how the pro-social process came about? Sure. Thanks, Niall. Um, so I identify as an organizational psychologist. Uh, my background is basically most of my career I've been working as both an academic and a practitioner working with people to try and improve uh, organizational performance and effectiveness in groups, communication. I've had a very long-standing interest in conflict resolution and mediation and so forth. Uh, so a lot of my work has been about how to enhance communication. But I've also had a, quite an interest in, in mindfulness and stress reduction in organisations. And so much of my research has been about well-being as well. And about, um, <clears throat> I guess, maybe oh, seven or eight years ago, um, actually a little bit longer than that now, I, I uh, met David Sloan Wilson, um, who's the I guess now we say the co-founder of ProSocial as I've uh, contributed quite a lot to the development of ProSocial, but he, he had originally worked with um, Lynn Ostrom and developed the idea that Lynn Ostrom's uh, design principles that she came up with, which no doubt we'll talk about, uh, might be useful for groups of all sorts. And from there, um, I became involved with the ProSocial group as it was then. and. Um, started to really kind of flesh out, um, well, how could groups uh, do these core design principles? How could they talk about them together? How could they explore them um, in ways that might be productive in, in not just organizational settings, but in groups of all sorts, in activist groups, communities, schools, um, and, uh, uh, you know, a mixture of formal and informal uh, settings. Why is this important for people and groups to understand this pro-social process and the principles upon which it's built? Oh gosh, um, I think there's kind of lots of ways to answer that question. The first thing that came to my mind is that the pro-social process allows groups to talk about the hard things the difficult topics that often get avoided and end up causing the vast majority of conflicts and they cause people to get increasingly disengaged and to just withdraw. There's a pattern that happens very often in groups and you would have seen it in workplaces where people just stop showing up in one way or another. They stop engaging and it's usually because enough difficulties have accumulated that can't be discussed uh, that they just, they just pull out. Um, and so one thing that I think is particularly important about the pro-social process is that, um, is that capacity to uh, help discuss the difficult things. Another thing I think is really key is uh, finding clarity of purpose. Why are we together? 
and integrating. Um, what I often talk about pro-social as being about integrating individual interests and collective interests. Uh, so not about subverting individual interests. We're really interested in individual passion and what people care about that they bring to groups because that's what um, energizes groups. Uh, but on the other hand, what we're trying to do is create a bit of a shift in perception uh, toward, you know, not just what's in it for me, but what's in it for us, including me. So uh, a sense of identification with the group that um, means that people, yeah, are thinking about are beyond their immediate needs, if you like. Um, so your question about why is it important, I guess, I, I also think pro-social is very important at a societal level. Uh, because we really don't have a, we don't have enough options for talking about uh, ways you can enhance cooperation in the new sorts of groups that are that are forming, sort of networked organisations, if you like. I mean, traditionally we had discrete organisations that were organised in hierarchies, but these days much of what we do is organised in on platforms and in networks of, of, of people that are only um, loosely affiliated. It's in groups of groups. Uh, and so what we need is a set of kind of core principles, if you like, that can be applicable to um, all sorts of human cooperation. And that's where I think the pro-social principles are, are really helpful that um, they come from a kind of fundamental model of how a human works, <laughs> which includes both what they, you know, care about and love, and and also what they fear, um, and and how they behave, but but also a very fundamental set of principles around um, how you can create groups that respect people's individuality, but still um, create a culture of working together towards a shared purpose. 100%. Um, one of the things I really like about the book is that you draw from multiple different disciplines. You know, you draw from Lynn Ostrom's work, you draw from evolutionary science through David Sloan Wilson, and then obviously Stephen Hayes is a co-author as well. Um, so maybe, Paul, if you could tell us about kind of the core ideas that the approach is built upon and how these kind of work together to, to form the pro-social approach into something that is extremely practical for, for any kind of group. Mm, thank you. Well, the first idea is the idea of evolutionary theory. And uh, from my point of view, what's really key about that is, um, is twofold. One is the idea that we're continuously, or culture is continuously evolving. Um, that we're trying out new things and some of those things get selected and they stick over time. Uh, but this is happening at multiple levels. And for me, that's um, that's really important. I've had a longstanding interest in, in Buddhist thought, for instance, and in Buddhism, there's the, the idea of no self, that we, that we um, are not separate and discrete, that we're actually completely embedded in the systems around us and that we're made up by our environment and our connections to others. And you can really clearly see that reflected in a scientific way in multi-level selection theory, that it's basically talking about evolution occurring at, at every level, at the level of cells in our body that are being uh, generated and, and pruned and so forth and dying. Uh, at the level of organs, at the level of us as an individual, we're evolving, but also at the level of our groups. There are certain cultures evolving and groups that are more or less successful and more or less likely to spread their practices. And of course, as a globe, we're um, evolving. So for me, that idea of evolution um, provides hope that we've evolved to where we are and we can consciously influence evolution now. We're in a position now where we don't have to just react to evolutionary processes, we can actually choose them. So evolutionary theory, that, that's one, one piece. It, it just provides a general understanding of how change occurs in 
um, not just genetic processes, but epigenetic processes, and all, more importantly for prosocial in behavioral and cultural processes. So it gives a very general platform. Then of course, there's the influence of Lynn Ostrom. Uh, Lynn Ostrom was a political scientist. Um, unfortunately, she passed away in 2012, but in 2009, she won the Nobel Prize for Economics for her work over many years on the commons. And essentially what she was doing was uh, rebutting the common economic idea that we're all self-interested utility maximizers, that we're all individuals that are basically out for everything we can get, which some of your listeners may have heard expressed in the tragedy of the commons, a parable that basically um, says that uh, if you, uh, provide a commons, a, a shared resource, that individuals will exploit it until it's all gone and everybody loses out. Uh, the, the particular example that was used in the original paper was about uh, a common field that, and the idea was that um, pastoralists would, would continue to put cows on that field until all the grass was gone. Now, Lynn Ostrom's work, uh, basically what she did was, you know, question that economic orthodoxy and she examined groups all around the world who study who uh, managed things like water supplies and fisheries and um, shared land and so forth forestry and so forth and she basically showed that it doesn't really work out that way um, humans provided the right conditions are extremely good at sharing resources uh, at, creating mechanisms whereby they can share resources sometimes for even thousands of years. And uh, she articulated that work in, um, she articulated the, what, what the sort of core principles, what we've come to call the core design principles for what underpins that. There were no, the, the, these groups all around the world, they differed in the particularities of what they did, but her genius was to identify these eight um, kind of general principles that um, I can talk about if you like, that, uh, that underpinned successful sharing and cooperation. And really what she, her work did was provide an alternative to, to go back to your earlier question about why is pro-social important? Uh, I meant to say that it, it, it provides an alternative narrative to just talking about public and private or top-down regulation and markets, which are really the only two mechanisms that we've got for broad-scale cooperation that we, we just talk about all the time. We talk about either people are told what to do, they're coerced basically, ultimately by police forces and so forth, or um, we rely upon the invisible hand of the market. And those are the two sort of mechanisms that have come to dominate um, policy and discourse in terms of cooperation. But there's a much older narrative, which is simply sharing in small groups, uh, localized groups that are managing something that really matters to them, whether it's a, a concrete resource or something like Wikipedia or you know something that matters to them. And they create a set of rules to and agreements to share that resource. We think of that as the commons. So her work um, comprehensively um, showed that uh, the economic orthodoxy of homo economicus, that we're, we're all self-interested utility maximizers is utterly empty and, and bereft. And, um, but we do need to think about carefully about what are the conditions that we need to have in place where people don't act out of self-interest? You asked me about the various different pieces and I'll give you a bit of an overview, but we perhaps might come back and talk a bit about how the principles support people in um, acting in the collective interest rather than the individual interest. So the third main discipline that I wanna talk about is, is psychology and in particular behavioral psychology and in particular, a particular form of behavioral psychology, which is called contextual behavioral science. Uh, this has been used to develop an extremely um, popular and uh, successful, as measured by hundreds of randomized control trials, 
therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. But acceptance and commitment therapy could easily be called acceptance and commitment training. It's really about how we can change our behavior to be more in line with what really matters to us, even in the presence of difficult experiences. And so what we've done in ProSocial is to bring together Ostrom's sort of large scale work on groups of all sorts with the psychology of individuals and how we can change people in groups um, in ways that allow them to, to act more effectively even when it's hard or more in a more values driven way, even when it's hard. That's, that's really interesting, Paul. Um, just to go back to what you were saying about, you know, the tragedy of the commons and homo economicus and this kind of narrative that we've had in our culture for a long time, that we're very individualistic, self-interested actors. Um, I'd be curious to ask your opinion on how important you think the narrative we have about ourself you know about human nature and how that affects our behavior in society because to me it seems like how we think about ourselves can kind of become like a self-fulfilling prophecy so if i think i'm a selfish individual living in a world where everybody's kind of out to out for their own good then that's how i'm going to act whereas if i think that basically i'm a member of a cooperative species and you know i'm going to do my part to contribute to that then I'm going to act in a completely different way. So the, the narrative we have around the culture we live in seems to be very important. And I know you're, you're writing a new book now around, it's one of the topics you're covering is on dominant narratives. So could you maybe speak a bit to that there? Absolutely. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, empirically, you're correct. Um, there's, a, there's a really nice study that was done by the Common Cause Foundation in the, in the United Kingdom uh, called Perceptions Matter, and you could link to it on your um, on your site if you wanted to. Uh, and what they did was they looked at um, the perceptions that people had of how compassionate or, or uh, I can't remember the opposite term they used, but let's say um, selfish, for want of a better term. I'm not sure if that was the term they used. But let's say they looked at, they, they rate, got people to rate how compassionate or selfish they were themselves. <laughs> or, and, and then they got them to rate how compassionate or selfish everyone else is. And of course you get this massive discrepancy, which is basically that, you know, pretty much everyone thinks of themselves as highly compassionate and pro-social, uh, but they don't think of others in that way. And interestingly to, back up exactly what you just said to the extent that people see the rest of society as being selfish or self-interested um, they're less likely to vote they're less likely to take part in community action they're less likely to contribute to society in a variety of different ways so that's one line of evidence that basically our perceptions indeed do matter the narrative matters and if we start to think what was even more interesting was when they looked at institutions and, and uh, rated them in terms of how compassionate different institutions were. And from memory, I can't remember exactly, but from memory, uh, government for one was seen as highly uh, non-compassionate, whatever the term was that they used, um, and a variety of other institutions that you would think we would wish to trust were seen as being um, not, not having our, um, the public's interests at heart, which of course then changes our relationship. And you've seen trust in government drop off a cliff over the last um, few decades. The, there's also other evidence, like for example, there's some um, wonderful studies done on what happens with first year economics students when they first learn um, about the tragedy of the commons, for instance, and they actually get more selfish, like they behaviorally get more selfish and so they did studies where they actually tested, would, would you be, you know, willing to help this person in difficulty and showed that after a term of learning about the tragedy of the commons, they were less likely to be uh, willing to help. So, um, these stories absolutely matter. I often use the metaphor, I don't know if you've heard this 
um, apparently American Indian tale of the grandfather who says to his child, you know, within each of us, there's, there's, there's two wolves. One wolf is, is full of hatred and bitterness and selfishness, and another is full of compassion, kindness and, and love. Um, and the, the grandsons, and they're fighting, right? And the grandson says, which one will win? And the father, grandfather says, whichever one you feed. And it's pretty much that situation for us. We are, um, Emile Durkheim used the term homo duplex. You know, we're capable of great good and great evil. We are largely evolved to be highly cooperative but we can go the other way. We can evolve that way. It depends what we choose. It depends what we create. It depends what we culturally evolve. David Sloan Wilson often uses the term that we need to be wise managers of cultural evolution. We need to understand evolution and how it works, but then we need to actually be willing to take responsibility for change, to, be, to recognize that Governments don't run things. You know, the, the way that things work now, it is the sum of our actions, the sum of what we do together, that's going to determine the direction that we go. And so each of us has a responsibility, I think, to, to um, question narratives of selfishness and to notice the vast proportion of the time that we're actually pro-social. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful scene that, you know, you may recognise from Love Actually, you know, with that scene at the beginning, I think, and the end, perhaps, where they're meeting in, in Heathrow Airport and basically there's this um, overlay from Hugh Grant that sort of says, you know, there's all this tendency in the news to focus on the negative, but all you've got to do is stand in Heathrow Airport for a little while and you'll see that, you know, the vast majority of human interactions are deeply cooperative and loving and we just don't see it enough. And in part, we can lay that at the feet of the media, but as they often say, that's what people want. We, um, we love to be titillated by stories of threat. And uh, yeah, so I'm rambling a bit, but I definitely think that um, there is an alternative narrative which is possible, which is that we are incredibly cooperative. We're evolved. You know, even, even the fact that we have the whites of our eyes, um, that no other primate has that. They have, they have eyes that it's much, much harder to tell where you're looking. But we have um, a, a facial structure that's evolved to, for people to pay joint attention to something, for people to both direct their gaze, because I can see where you're looking, so I can look in that direction too. In our evolution, we are evolved to be a cooperative species. Just look at language, for instance, which creates thought, which creates the possibility of, you know, pretty much everything we're capable of as a human species. We're not stronger, we're not fitter, but we can cooperate, unlike any other organ, any other organism on the planet. One hundred percent. I haven't seen Love actually, but uh, I have. I was reading a book last. <laughs> so you really? You must be the only person. In the... <laughs> Sorry, it's our annual Christmas movie in my household. <laughs> but it's... anyway, I apologise. It's all good. Um, but it's funny you mentioned that metaphor about the grandfather and the son walking alongside the river, and at the end he says, "You know, it's, it's about the one you feed." I was reading that in mm. uh, Paul Gil Gilbert's book last week, the the compassionate mind. Really interesting. Um, yeah. What I, one of the things I found most interesting about about your book, Paul, was. Um, the work on evolution and multi-level selection and that the fact that natural selection takes, seems to take place at multiple levels at the same time. So it's not just happening um, between individuals, it's also happening between groups. It's also happening between the cells in our body, for example. And mm -hmm. could you maybe tell us about some of the kind of the, the kind of the key ideas that people need to know about this from a pro-social point of view and I think in particular how I, I, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right but the idea that selection at lower levels tends to undermine selection at higher levels so selection at the level of the individual can undermine selection at the level of the group if that makes sense mm, mm. 
Well, there just seems to be a general pattern that um, uh, I guess I see it as a, um, forces in opposite directions. On the one hand, there's the tendency for um, lower levels of organisation to be able to um, really undermine the functioning of the whole organism. So take, for example, cancer, which you can think of as uh, essentially selfish cells that say, I want to reproduce at the cost of whatever organ they're inhabiting, okay? Um, and so uh, that self-interest under uh, um, the enactment of that self-interest I'm anthropomorphizing cells here, but you know the action in their own interest undermines the uh, functioning of the higher order organism. On the other hand, um, and then you've seen probably seen similar things in in groups where it can just take one person um, can um, act in a particular way, which will undermine the integrity of an entire cooperative system. On the other hand, there's a there's a force very much in the direction of um, uh, cooperation, and that is that um, highly cooperative groups often outcompete and outperform uh, less cooperative groups. And so, um, if in certain circumstances, uh, provided that um, the sorts of conditions that we outline in the core design principles are met then it's possible for individuals to actually benefit greatly from um, being less self-centered and uh, more willing to contribute to the group in order to create something that's greater than the sum of the parts. So it's really a, an outcome of a complex adaptive system, if you like, that there's these forces that are pushing for um, individual selfishness and there's these forces that are pushing for um, collective action, if you like, and their intention all the time. In animal systems, those things play out um, without conscious choice, but in human systems, we have the capacity to plan and reflect upon how things work. And so we have the capacity to articulate what might be possible if we are able to work more effectively together and therefore strengthen the forces pulling in the direction of um, cooperation. I think maybe a good example to help people better understand this idea might be if you tell us about the chicken breeders, I think you were in the 1970s. Oh, yeah, thanks for that yeah, prompt. So uh, a wonderful study that uh, we report on in the book, um, which uh, uh, was done and um, it explored what happened if under two conditions, um, this is about breeding uh, cages of chickens and each, so they bred cages of chickens over six generations, I believe. And each, the, the, the cages of chickens were chosen in two different ways. In one condition, they chose the highest performing chicken from each cage to, to breed. Uh, and the highest performing, I mean, the um, one that laid the most eggs uh, to breed, and then they um, put those together in the in the next cage and so forth. And in another condition, they chose the highest performing cage as the breeders. They went through six generations, and um, and then I have some photos in the in the book, I think, um, which show what happened after a number of generations of of this um, selective breeding, if you like. And I often say to people now, which would you expect? Obviously, I'm I'm asking the question, so they're a little bit alert to a bit of a surprise. But I, I highlight the fact that the vast majority of our society is set up to to select. The, the most prolific egg layers, if you like. I mean, look at any university. Uh, quite often they'll select the academics that have the most individual publications. Uh, that would be a typical selection process. They wouldn't look particularly at um, how well a group gets along and they certainly wouldn't select an entire group. So which one does better? Well, after six generations, 
there's a picture in my book of, of in our book of of um, of uh, the in the individual selection case, they basically peck each other to death. Um, so what you're selecting for is the the chickens that um, that do really well individually, that are able to capitalise upon um, the the work of others, um, but you're not selecting for the uh, capacity to get along with others and to work effectively in a group. And so the other chickens, the ones that do really well, uh, are the ones that are selected for by cage because what you're getting there is maybe some chickens that don't lay too many eggs, but um, they're certainly the ones that can get along. <laughs> I think it's a really nice parable for, um, for, for organisations of all sorts. It's not about selecting just for individual performance. It's also about a, a suite of capacities that uh, allow groups to get along effectively. And you're only likely to see that when you look at the whole group. 100%. Um, so now, Paul, I think maybe we could move along to um, Lynn Ostrom's uh, core design principles. And mm. I think there are eight in total. Could you maybe just to start off with, take us through an overview of the, uh, the eight different uh, CDPs, please? Sure. Um, I'm wondering if it would be helpful to show a slide if you're going to be um, uh, showing this to a group, or would you like me just to go through it verbally? Um, if it's easy for you to do, you can show the slide, yeah, if you want to just share your screen. Sure, I might do that. Um, so, just getting set up here to... Um, Actually, you'll need to enable screen sharing. Is that easy to do or would you rather I just talk about it? Um, let me see. If you try that now, maybe. So here's the eight core design principles as we, um, <clears throat> as we presented them. So this is not Ostrom's original formulation of them. Um, <clears throat> if you like, I'll tell you a little bit about um, uh, some of the ways that we do things, talk about things a little bit differently to, um, to Ostrom. Um, actually, I'll just show you a different form of them. Um, so uh, the first one is building a sense of shared identity and purpose. This is uh, a little bit different to Ostrom's um, emphasis. She was particularly focused on clarity of who belongs to the group and who doesn't. Uh, the work that David Sloan Wilson did with Lynn Ostrom just before she died, they uh, broadened that out to um, the idea of sort of um, it's important to know who controls a resource. That's really relevant to resource management. But if you're thinking about your average team in an organization or um, it, what's more important than, or what's as important uh, and more general than just understanding who who's in the group is, uh, does the group have a sense of shared identity and purpose? Actually, I'm just looking at this and I'm thinking, I, I I'm, I didn't vet this slide beforehand. I think um, I'm just gonna use a more general terminology rather than the terminology that was on that slide. So the first one is strong shared identity and purpose. Um, the second one is equitable distribution of costs and benefits and contributions and benefits. So this is all about, um, so the first one is important because if you're trying to create a highly cooperative group, obviously it's important that there's a, at least a, a basic level of agreement about what the group is about and that people are all committed to that purpose. The second one is about equity. Why does that matter in terms of um, creating group interests? Well, because human beings are extraordinarily sensitive to inequity and inequity undermines cooperation. Basically, we need to have in place a check on um, some profiting at the, at the expense of others. 
the third is fair and inclusive decision making. Uh, Ostrom's insight was that basically um, for groups that were very effective over the long term, um, everybody who was affected by decisions had some input, some degree of input to those decisions. Now that's not always possible in, in every group. Um, and sometimes you have representative systems where you elect a leader or you promote a leader that works genuinely on behalf of the interests of the people in the group. Um, if it's not possible to engage everyone in, in decision-making, but generally speaking, we need, we need to, uh, if we wanna create groups where everyone's in, needs are met or considered and um, uh, everyone's needs are taken into account, then obviously it's important that people are involved in decision-making. The fourth one is often called monitoring of agreed behaviours. Um, I like to talk about that as transparency of behaviour, basically that we can see what other people are doing in the, in the group. Um, so I think most people react fairly negatively to the word monitoring. It's got sort of big brother overtones to it, but they don't react negatively to the idea of transparency that it's really in the dark that selfish behaviour tends to thrive. Um, the fifth one was articulated by Ostrom as graduated sanctions for transgressions. So she was talking about how it was really important for groups to be able to sanction those people um, who acted in their own interests rather than the interests of the group. And that those sanctions should start with very mild um, rebukes, you know, a friendly, one of the examples that uh, is used in her work is of a, um, lobster fishers in Maine who um, would just tie a little ribbon on a on a, a trap that was put in the wrong location for uh, or out of turn um, just to flag that it had been noticed um, by others that were um, uh, in the cooperative. Um, so starting with very mild you know in the case of an average group it might be um, hey Niall I noticed you did this thing that we um, it seems to be contrary to what we agreed. Um, can you tell me what was going on? You know, literally starting with very mild, but most groups need to have um, uh, escalating sanctions that go right through to um, being able to be expelled from the group. Otherwise you end up like with a situation like most um, government departments and universities where you can't actually get rid of anyone because <laughs> they just pass them sideways. Anyway, that was all Ostrom's work on graduated sanctions for misbehaviors. And as a psychologist, I was very wary about this. So I'm spending a little bit of time on this one because for me, it was a real eye opener. I mean, I'm as a psychologist, you sort of taught that everyone needs to be treated with love and you know, people only act badly because they're afraid or whatever. And, but my experience had been in groups that we really need to deal with misbehavior. Uh, and so it was a bit of a, an eye opener. But having said that, we don't want to, and, and, and I should say the research is there that people don't trust groups where misbehavior is not dealt with. They don't mm -hmm. feel safe and they're not willing to contribute their whole selves if they know that people can transgress without any sanctions. So sanctions are really important. But so, sorry, Paul, just a quick question on that. Yeah. Um, is it important to bring in the third principle as well whenever you're creating the graduate sanctions? Should everybody have a say in what sanctions are and should they know before the group kind of starts its activities? Yeah, well, that actually brings in the second one as well. Oh, um, to some extent, the questions of equity. Um, absolutely. I think what's really key is that there's agreement about behaviour and agreement about what is likely to happen if if those things aren't met, or at least that that unfolds over time. We are trying to move. Increasingly, I've thought about the pro-social approach as being moving from power over people to power with people. So if you think about how power runs through all these principles, it really is about power with including um, responding for the good of the group. 
Now, the other piece of graduated responding that we really built in um, during the writing of the pro-social book, and David, Steve, and I had lots of debate about whether to do this, was we recognised that you can't create groups just on sanctions. You have to have strong reinforcers in place mm -hmm. as well for doing the right thing. And so we adapted that principle a little to talk about graduated responding to both, responding to both helpful and unhelpful behaviour. Um, that you need to have reinforcement as well as sanctions. And to some extent, I've wondered, if I'm honest, I've wondered whether that was a good idea because it means we departed a little bit from Ostrom's original formulation and reinforcement kind of runs through all the other principles. But I think it's a good idea because in our training, we often find that when we talk about feedback, we want to be able to cover both positive and negative feedback, if you like. So that's principle five. Um, principle six is fast and fair conflict resolution. Um, obviously, uh, to the extent that we let uh, conflict fester, that it's not dealt with, um, then people are more likely to act in their own interests in a group and be less likely to trust being able to work with others. Um, this, the last two principles, seven and eight, <clears throat> really talk about <coughs> how the group relates to other groups. So the first one is authority to self-govern. Now you can think of this as kind of self-managing teams in an extreme form. You can, and it's really about the idea that a group should not be so interfered with that, um, that it can't manage those six earlier principles, right? And the example I sometimes use is um, government, a, a team in a public service agency where there's so much bureaucracy and so many rules and so forth that it's actually impossible for a leader to lead. Um, it's impossible for them to involve people in decision-making. It's impossible for them to resolve conflicts within the team. They have to take it to HR or whatever. Um, and so you could think of principle seven as being about the idea that the group as a whole needs to have enough autonomy to be able to actually do the first um, six principles. They don't have excessive interference from outside. Now, having said that, they can't be completely autonomous. No group is an island and any team within an organisation needs to work within the broader purpose of the organisation. And so this is where principle eight becomes really important. If you think about um, principle seven as being about um, uh, the sort of inwards influence upon the group. Principle eight is about how the group relates to other groups within the organisation. And um, here again, you've got this kind of fractal nature, if you like, of where um, if groups are able to enact those first seven principles uh, between groups, then you've got a highly functioning system. So if you want to have um, groups of groups need to have a sense of shared identity and purpose. Groups of groups need to have equity between groups. There needs to be fair and inclusive decision-making in terms of different groups having contribution to decision-making. Needs to be monitoring. There needs to be graduated responding if one group acts more in their own interest than another needs to be conflict resolution processes between groups and appropriate levels of autonomy and leadership. And so the, the genius, I think, of Ostrom's principles is that she was able to identify a set of principles that can apply at the level of a, a group of individuals, but also a group of groups. And that means we can scale it to any scale we like. We could scale it to the planet, potentially, um, if we were, I mean, just think how, much further we'd be along in, in many of our challenges like uh, climate change, for instance, if we agreed upon a set of principles such as this and we worked towards a sense of shared identity and purpose, if we worked towards um, inclusion in decision-making and so forth. That's super interesting. Um, it's, it's like, just the multi-level the multi -level selection thing again, you know, it applies at the one group level, but also at the multiple group level. Um, I, I'm wondering, is it a coincidence that the very first one of these principles is the shared purpose and the shared group identity, or 
is that deliberately at number one? And second part of that question is, how do you, in the practical work you do, how do you help groups develop this um, this core purpose together? Like, how do you facilitate that process? Mm, thank you. Well, it's absolutely no coincidence. I definitely so I think of it as sort of the one ring to rule them all, if you like. Um, without a sense of strong identity and, 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 a, and shared purpose, then you're not really a group. You're not really a cooperative group. Anyway, you're, you're, um, you might be a group of disparate individuals pulling in different directions. But um, it, it kind of defines the group, if you like, and it defines the boundaries of the groups. If, you, if you're not, yeah, I mean, if, if you take purpose seriously. If, and this in itself is a big shift. I, I, I should say, apologies if I'm digressing here, but, um, you know, many teams are sort of defined by formal hierarchy in, in organisations and they lose sight of what they're about. Like, what are they for? The XYZ team and they can't remember why they exist. They just, they're there because of a formal structure. But in our approach, we're constantly asking, you know, what are we about? And is what we're doing moving us towards our purpose? Um, so that essentially defines whether someone should be in or out of the group. Um, it defines the boundaries of the group and it sets the context for everything else. Fair and inclusive decision-making is made in the context of moving forward our purpose together. Monitoring and responding is all about in order to serve our purpose. So it, it everything sits underneath purpose. And if, if you do, I've just come across another um, uh, slide that actually has these names on it. Um, and if, if you, so this is a, a tool that we often use with groups to um, ask them to rate their own uh, team or their whole organization on each of these core design principles. Um, this one you just ask is, is um, in a sense the, the most important, although um, they're all inter interlinked and they're all critical. Uh, you can, you asked about why that one's first. I often think if you, imagine if you're starting with a new team, uh, it's actually a really good idea to pursue these in order. Um, you first of all, think about, well, what are we about? Then think about, well, how can we create a culture that takes care of everybody's needs in this uh, group? How are we going to make decisions together? You're already a very long way down the track of designing a really effective group. Mm -hmm. How are we going to notice one another and respond to one another's behavior? Four and five go together. How are we going to resolve conflicts? How are we going to lead ourselves in such a way that we um, protect ourselves from excessive interference from outside? And how are we going to relate to the other groups in our ecosystem? So. Um, there is a kind of natural unfolding to these principles as well. The second part of your question was about, well, how do we create strong identity and understanding of purpose? <clears throat> um, I'm not sure if I have a slide to illustrate a tool. Yes, I do. Um, so one way that we do that is through using a tool which is sometimes called the noticing tool or originally called the ACT matrix. And this comes from um, a uh, from acceptance and commitment therapy, acceptance and commitment training, particularly some work done by Kevin Polk, Benji Schuendorf and others to develop this tool. It's a really generally useful tool. And the, the thing that I like about it is that it, it, it helps people to articulate um, what really matters to them, what, what they as individuals or as a group are moving toward, and also what they're afraid of, what they're concerned about, what they're moving away from, what's uh, evoking the fight flight response, if you like. At the same time, it asks, um, you know, all, all organisms move uh, toward what they want more of and away from what they want less of, um, but only humans have constructed this internal world of inner thoughts and feelings. And so uh, 
you can also make a really useful distinction between uh, the, 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 the inner world, the verbal world, if you like, of thoughts and feelings, and the world of actual behavior of how people um, uh, act in the world, how they move their arms and legs. This little symbol here is meant to be, you know, up the top, we've got the head and the heart. Down the bottom, we've got how we move our arms and legs. One of the nice things that we do in pro-social is that we, um, we do two runs through this matrix tool. One that's at the level of individuals, and that's how this one's phrased. You know, up here, we've got our toward moves, our values, what matters most to me about, in this case, being a part of this group. If I was actually living in line with what matters, what would I be doing in this situation? So down here, we've got the world of behavior. And then over here, we capture okay, what, what are the hard things that show up? What are the concerns, if you like? Um, so, you know, to give you, make this a little bit concrete, let's say I'm in a group, um, you know, one of the things that matters to me is about sharing resources um, or, or um, helping others. One way I can do that is to share resources, but I might get concerned that if I share resources with others, I won't get recognized for my own um, achievements, if you like, and that might lead me to uh, sort of keep things quiet and maybe, um, you know, just ob obfuscate when people ask me for help. So we get people to do that at an individual level, but we also ask them to, you can just as easily run this tool again, um, saying what matters most to us in this group? What's our shared purpose? There are many different ways to ask that you can use this tool over and over again. You can say what matters most to us about fair and inclusive decision making and in that way you can explore each of the core design principles separately. Um, you know, what matters most to us about monitoring, what matters most to us about um, fast and fair conflict resolution. So uh, you, this is a very general useful tool now, you asked originally about establishing shared identity and purpose. Um, there are a number of kind of sub processes that we've come to use to, 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 to do that. In, a, in addition to just asking people what matters to you, we also um, uh, make a distinction between goals, um, and values and needs. And we have particular processes that we use to help people articulate shared goals, values, and needs. Um, but the key thing that I think the ACT matrix and the noticing tool really adds to much work that's out there is to provide a, a genuine space for people to be able to talk about their own individual needs and aims and, and values in a way that's um, respectful, but, but, but included in that is their fears and concerns. The only other tool that I've ever seen that, that does this quite explicitly is, um, is some work by Robert Keegan called Competing Commitments, which also recognizes that in every toward move, there's also an away move, you know, that, um, this is something that comes out of the basic psychology of language that essentially as soon as we articulate something we really care about that's also where we most hurt you know yeah. if i really care about my my daughters as i do i'm also they also occupy most of my energy when i'm worrying about what could go wrong um, so it's it, it creates a sense of shared purpose that's rich and deep and takes account of individuals as well as the collective, but also provides space for the undiscussables to be discussed. Fantastic. And it, again, it goes back to the, the evolutionary theory stuff. It, it seems that it's a very effective tool for merging the individual's interest with the interest of the group, which can compete sometimes. So that, that seems really powerful. Mm. Um, just a couple more questions to finish up, Paul, before we, before we end. Um, I'm curious to ask, you know, um, if you could get this process into the hands of any group or any groups of groups in the world and you could work with them to, um, to start acting in more pro-social ways or to, to use the pro-social process, 
who would those groups be like where where do you see that this could have the the biggest benefit on society hmm. that's great um well i'm sure i'll think of a different answer to this later but um the two that immediately came to mind were um it's basically government processes of government i'm extremely interested in deliberative democracy um, and i'd love to see us um uh adopting processes of, of deliberation and decision making that take account of these principles instead of uh, the, the incredibly outmoded, ineffective, combative um, forms of, uh, you know, barely managed self-interest that we currently call representative democracy. So that, that's one area where I obviously think we could have a great deal of impact. At the other end of the scale, I'm really excited about um, the pro-social schools initiative. Um, I think that if we can, you know, we teach kids about geometry, which no offense to maths teachers, but I can't recall using a great deal since I learned about it, but we teach very little in terms of human cooperation and communication self-regulation and the capacity to be able to get along with others. I mean, it's increasing perhaps to some extent, but really, is there a more important topic? Um, and it's, it's often seen as a sort of soft skill on the edge of things and slightly illegitimate. Um, I would love to see uh, the study of human cooperation from a multidisciplinary perspective and framed in terms of Ostrom's principles be in, in, included in schools and included as part of um, both uh, the content knowledge, but also the, the kind of broader socio-emotional education of, of children. And to that end, the pro-social schools group is, um, uh, including um, a variety of people, Dustin Erdosh, Susie Hanish, Peter Bullock, uh, particularly leading this group. And they're just doing amazing work to develop uh, materials that can be used by school teachers. And uh, they're working on an idea of a pro-social youth corps where young people might be trained in how to train others in this and then uh, have groups of young people that are led by young people. Um, embodying and enacting these principles. So I think two ends of the spectrum, crusty old politicians and, um, and, and young, younger school students, uh, two of the most exciting areas that I see. But, um, you know, it's, it's taking off in, in many places and I, and I am delighted um, we on our last course we had a, a gentleman from uh, the prison system in Argentina who um, is working with um, men to help re-engage them in society uh, through rugby um, rugby union, and he, he just saw many ways in which these tools, like the matrix tool that I just showed you, could be used with the prison population to help them explore both what they cared about and what they're afraid of and, and to act in more, in ways that are more consistent with their deeper held values rather than their reactivity. So the potential is enormous. I, I suppose the other primary area that I would see as being critical is in coming to deeper um, understandings and action about um, our primary environmental challenges. Uh, if we don't act quickly in terms of climate change and biodiversity loss and so forth, come to a perspective that's more uh, uh, respectful of the science and, and also of the, of the needs of the broader community rather than just a few, then I think we're in serious trouble. So, um, we're certainly very actively involved with uh, groups that are involved in regenerative agriculture and re regenerative culture as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so just just to finish up, Paul, um, for anybody listening to this that is interested in using the pro-social approach in their work, maybe they're a director of a company or a startup or even a coach, um, what are some first steps? Like where can they find you online? Um, where can they get the book? Like what are the, some of the first things that people that you recommend people to do? Oh, great. Well, um, so in terms of finding us online, our, our website is www.prosocial.world. No com or org or anything. It's just prosocial.world. Um, and when you go there, you'll see uh, some stories, case studies. You'll also see um, uh, some material about what prosocial is. And you'll also see links to facilitator training. Anybody who'd like to learn more about the approach, the approach uh, in an experiential way with a committed group of colleagues um, working in small teams consistent with our approach, um, then you can do the 10-week uh, facilitator training that's available there at, at prosocial.world. In terms of the book, I usually recommend people go to the New Harbinger site, that is the publisher, New Harbinger, and it's just um, called uh, the primary title is pro-social. It's got a very long subtitle, uh, which my, my kids always tease me about, but um, it's written by Atkins, Hayes, uh, um, Atkins, Sloan, Wilson and Hayes. And um, on the new Harbinger site, the advantage of going there is you can buy it as a PDF relatively cheaply if you want to, um, or you can just buy the book yourself. Otherwise it's available in all good bookstores. Fantastic. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. Uh, thank you so much for taking some of the time to share share your knowledge with us. And I just wish you the best of luck going forward. Thank you, Niall. I've enjoyed the conversation and um, uh, all the best to you and your listeners.